Welcome to Acid Horizon on Zero Repeater. Today, we're doing something really special. A lot of you already know Bernard Harcourt's work, and a lot of you may remember our discussion about genealogy, critical genealogy, Foucault, and Discipline and Punish that we had in the fall of last year on this very channel. So we're going to welcome Bernard Harcourt, but instead, rather than talking about the methodology of Michel Foucault, we're going to actually talk about Harcourt's own work, which is very exciting. So for those who don't know who Bernard Harcourt is, he's a critical theorist that works at Columbia Law School in New York City, of course, and he works with EHESS in Paris as well. But for those of us who spend more time in front of our computers than we would like to, you probably know Bernard Harcourt as the guy who introduces speakers at the 1313 series on everything from abolition, democracy to insurrection. So Bernard Harcourt recently published Critique and Praxis, but is back after the pandemic with another book, Cooperation, a Political, Economic, and Social Theory, uh, Social Theory out from Columbia Press, I believe. So it's very exciting to have Bernard Harcourt back on the show. Thank you so much, Professor Harcourt. Thank you, Will and Craig and Adam. Thanks so much for having me. So Critique and Praxis is a book, but it's kind of close to a tome. It's a massive undertaking of a huge historical problem that has been the fundamental question from Schopenhauer to Marx to the Frankfurt School, frankly. So that was a text that engaged really with the history of philosophy and the history of resistance in a pretty dense and meaningful way. But there's a tonal shift that I think has been kind of is notable from the introduction of cooperation that sort of posits itself in the position of both a historiography of this notion of cooperation and also a political prescriptivism, which might be something that's, you know, outside of some passages in against predict prediction is kind of new to your, to your, to your theoretical wheelhouse. So what pushed you in this direction or at least this register of authorship for political theory. Yeah, thanks, Will. You're right. There is a bit of a shift, perhaps, in tone. You know, in in part, I've always thought of this book on cooperation as a different ending for critique and praxis. And I, I originally wanted to title this, you know, Critique and Praxis Volume 2. Because, I mean, in a way, it, it picks up at the end. It picks up on the praxis question. In the first, in the, in the preface to cooperation, I kind of say, look, you know, it's, we, 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 we understand the crises. We understand, I think, the, the questions of critique. But, but really, what we desperately need is to focus on, kind of, on the praxis. And so, in a way, this is a, a different ending to critique and praxis. I don't think that it, I don't think that it changes what I was trying to do theoretically in terms of a, a theory of illusions or to change much about the theory of values that's at the heart of critique and praxis. But I think that it does shift a little bit in terms of the tone. You're right because, in part, as a as a result of the conversations during Revolution thirteen thirteen which was from the, not last year, but the year before. And particularly, Biodun Jeifo's challenge about, you know, 
the way I had positioned critique and praxis as being all about what more am I to do? And he, and he really challenged me to think about, well, what, you know, what more are, are we to do? It's not so much a question of prescribing what other people are to, to do, but to think about how we can work together. And that's, and that's what the book does. I mean, and so it develops a, a theory of cooperation, which is really a bottom up theory about what, what we can do together in this moment. In a moment of just, you know, I mean, many people are feeling a lot of despair, nihilism, concern at the, both about kind of like the state of politics, but also global climate change. And so I think that what I'm trying to do in this book is really kind of chart a path forward that that's possible, conceivable, that might be able to help us address the crises that we face. It was also, you know, the text was also born during the pandemic, right, which I think had an effect of changing the way we think about the world. I know a lot of people during the pandemic kind of went back to their 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 wheelhouse in a way, went back to try and find resources in the in the in the in the spaces that they felt most comfortable. And the place I felt most comfortable was in the great texts of political economy. And so, you know, as soon as the lockdown happened and you know, when I wasn't concerned and taking care of others and worried about and, you know, grieving, I was rereading the texts of political economy, Marx, Capital, Proudhon, what is property? I mean, I was just, for, for me, what the, what the pandemic did was to bring me back, ground me back in questions of political economy, which ultimately gave birth to this book, which is a, you know, a political, economic, and social theory. Yeah, we're going to, just after I follow up, we'll, we'll pass it off to Adam with the, the first of the, of the, I think, really meaty sections of the text, which is the relationship to the punishment paradigm and the dynamic, of, of ab- the dynamic between that and abolition democracy. But what's really interesting about this text is in some ways... For more, for more, perhaps not initiated, but accustomed listeners to the work of Foucault, there's kind of an interesting trajectory you share with him here in that late modernism and political economic theory start to bleed in more and more and take up a, a larger and larger space of, of the analysis, which is kind of an interesting shift, right? Between you, you open the social theory of cooperism with an account of the punitive society, right? Which is heavily dependent on French physiocratic theory, but not explicitly stated. Like Le Trosne is a, a fundamental figure. The physiocrats are fundamental figures, but only in as much as they produce kind of images of social enemies, right? You're seeming to take more seriously the relationship between, you know, Ricardo, Adam Smith, and more fundamental figures in the history of political economy and their relationship to how we conceive of cost and punishment, right? Because one of the most notable, notable shifts in, in birth of biopolitics is, is when, you know, Foucault looks back 
and notes the difference in how we engage with punishment. The shift is now to a question of economic calculation, not predicated just on a passage of time, right? An interaction between a transgressor, the state, the commonwealth, where you know the currency is time, but in fact it becomes a space of prediction, right, and of existential cost to the 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 security of the milieu. So, do you think that your engagement with you know late modern late modern political theory affects the way that you return to these more fundamental figures within your sort of arsenal? Of of theorists, probably the most notable notable being being Foucault. Yeah, no, that's that's really helpful. Thanks, Will. Because what I you know this this work also builds on earlier work under the title of you know the illusion of free markets, which tried to make the link between the physiocrats and notions of natural order from the 18th century and political economy, which is not often made. And so I'm glad you kind of put your finger on that because it was so important to that work. And I think it it grounds this work as well. In other words, trying to understand the way in which and the tensions between theories, political economic theories of natural order that gravitate towards notions of spontaneous order in the 20th century, obviously with Hayek, and notions of free markets, and how those are in such a tense relationship with the punitiveness of the state, and how they were kind of imbricated, right? These ideas of, on the one hand, the state plays no role because of the orderliness of economic exchange, whereas on the, whereas at the same time, it's the same state that is engaged in these kind of excessive punitive forms throughout and creating, you know, the panopticism that, that Foucault focused on in the 19th century France context, but that we see within the United States this mixture of kind of free markets that are then kind of embedded within racialized mass incarceration in this country and probably the largest punitive apparatus that we've ever seen exist. So, so the, the link is there. The link is in the foundations of the move towards cooperation. But I think that in this book, it produces two things that are that need to be conjoined two of the three and it's the it's the economic and the social theory so the economic theory of cooperism needs to be tied to a social theory that replaces the punitive paradigm with a cooperation paradigm and I think that one of the one of the things that's probably missing in a lot of theory of cooperation is that link, and 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 uh, and that's why that's why I think it's so important to have a kind of three dimensional theory of cooperation. But it's essential that there be 
not only a economic component, worker cooperatives, government, self-government, self-determination and democratic self-governance within the workplace, within, within all of these other spaces, but at the same time as having that essential economic component, there has to be the social component that displaces the punishment paradigm. And, you know, we have notions of mutual aid often kind of goes through these different spaces, but, 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 uh, but, the, but sometimes the problem is that notions of mutual aid don't adequately, sufficiently have their own autonomous economic theory with them. And then in, in the economic context or in, in the social context aren't, I mean, are, are often, but not necessarily tied to an abolitionist view on punishment, at trying to get rid of the punishment paradigm. So, so that's really helpful. But what it, 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 it kind of in this, in this particular work, it articulates along these kind of parallel tracks or dimensions that are necessary to the full-blown theory of what I call cooperism. Well, actually, my question is actually going to be more on this notion of what is cooperation, because what I think is so interesting about the way you set it up in, in the book is how cooperation itself is a kind of power and a new mode of power, a kind of co-op power. So I guess if we just want to cover some more of the fundamental frameworks, I guess, the question for me is, you know, what is cooperation, particularly as a mode of power? Because when we think exactly, we're talking about the idea that people think about cooperation altogether, sometimes in separate social and economic terms usually there's a way people are thinking about it is exactly as a kind of worker co-op the, co- the idea that we cooperate to produce and that surplus you know and what we produce ultimately has a surplus which you call co-op power but there's also the question of cooperating to resist which is itself a similar use of power so it's wondering if or flesh out this idea of cooperation in these modes and how they come together into this more sort of, I won't say totalizing, but more or like more encompassing political and social articulated theory. Yeah, thanks. So, yeah, I mean, cooperation is the word that seems to work most seamlessly through the different theoretical aspects of the kinds of interventions that I'm trying to regroup uh, under the notion of cooperism. Although I think uh, in a way, uh, and underlying your question is the problem that the word cooperation itself can mean a lot of different things Hmm. and can point in a lot of different directions. And doesn't necessarily, and it doesn't necessarily within itself, the notion of cooperating or cooperation doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. point in the direction of a theory of cooperism that I'm trying to develop here. Mm-hmm. And that's so that's 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 helpful. Uh, but at the uh, on the other hand, it's the it's the most lay term. It's the most kind of common term 
that we can hold on to to give a sense of what it is we're talking about when we're talking about cooperism, I think. And of course, it ties then, as your question asked, to this form of power that is some that I that I'm trying to call co-op power, co-op power that 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 emerges from these initiatives and these experiments. So, what is I think most hmm, distinctive of the notion of cooperation that I'm trying to center in cooperism is some conception of democratic self-governance and self-determination within facets of our lives that tend not to be governed by democratic decision-making or by working together. And that, of course, that of course is you know the employment context or the work context is is as a place where we we rarely kind of highlight or value democratic self determination right so but that's true also as well in our living conditions our residences where we live how we kind of live in relationship to our neighbors and others how we how we how we sustain ourselves how we how where we you know shop and do our groceries and things like that right so so i think that at the heart of the notion of cooperation that is in cooperism is the idea of trying to extend the form of democratic self-determination to every aspect of our lives and it's in that way also that 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 generates particular forms of power co-op power that can be extremely productive but at the same time it also places some limits on what we mean by democratic because this isn't a theory this isn't really a theory of democracy or it's not a it's not a it's not a simple theory of majority decision making and that's where the concept of cooperation democracy or cooperism democracy cooperism democracy just gets a little bit hard to say so i just decided to go with cooperation democracy rather places limits i think on on the very notion of democracy it's not it's not any democracy here that we're talking about we're talking about a cooperation democracy which means that there is authentic genuine self-determination in all aspects of life but that also goes with something like eliminating the punitive paradigm and replacing it with a cooperation paradigm so it's not as if it's not as if this is a this is simply you know, a democratic theory that just supports any outcome as long as it's an outcome of majority rule. That's not, that's not at all what we're talking about here. The notion of cooperation democracy means that these forms of, these forms of, of, of self-governance need to be at the heart of 
the regime of cooperism and and mm-hmm. tied to certain outcomes as well right if you if we were to remain with a punitive paradigm at the end of these forms of increased cooperism i don't think that we would have achieved what we were trying to get at Craig, why don't you jump in? Mm, Great. That's okay. Yeah. Thank thank you, Bernard, for coming on with us again today. I think all of us here have read a fair bit of the beginning of the book. And one of the things that struck me is that you venture your own definition of capital in chapter two, albeit a brief one. And you make the distinction that cooperism denotes a system different than capitalism and communism. And it's also something different than individualism or collectivism. And part of the definition that you advance of of what capital is, it's a sharing of stock or a financial stake in a corporation. And this idea of the stakeholder is comes up in the book at a few points. One of the challenges, especially, you know, talking about, you know, sort of transforming the paradigm of, of social action, collective action, away from this, this notion of punishment. I wonder how your definition of capital and cooperism in general deals with the the kinds of negative externalities that are produced not only under capital, but under the market itself. Because there's a way in which we can imagine the market to be inherently punitive in some sense. But beyond that, you know, I I, I think of like Deleuze and Gattari's notion of anti-production, maybe as, a, as another way to say negative externality in some instances. You know, the, the idea that for example, you know, market activity destroys and consumes viable resources. There's opportunity costs, loss of leisure time, and there's a way in which even cooperation can come to emulate the kinds of market activity that we see under capitalism. How what how, how does your theory of of cooperation deal with that? And well, maybe maybe we can simply start there. I, one of my mm-hmm. primary concerns is you know, how is it that through cooperation or cooperism that we don't end up merely recapitulating the kind of productivism that we ordinarily experience under capitalism? Yeah, great. Okay. So there's a lot packed into that question. So let me try and respond in a few moments or, yeah. The first thing is that I'm not so much trying to define capital as I am trying to be clear about what I mean when I use the word capital in the book. Okay. So, you know, I, I talk about the different ways in which other people are using the term, whether it's Marx or Piketty or Pistor. I want to be clear about the fact that when I'm referring to capital, I'm referring to, you know, the investment equity in which people kind of you know, invest in a an enterprise and hold an equitable stake. Why? Because that I think is the fundamental difference between you know a a a, a capitalist enterprise and a cooperist enterprise, where the there is no investor who's seeking 
a return on their investment, there are members, worker members, say, or or consumer members, or insurance policyholders, whatever it is. And so what I'm trying to do is to be very clear about the way I'm using the term capital to distinguish it the most productively from the conventional way in which we speak about equity investments and shareholders, right? So that I can make the distinction between shareholders in the capital context and stakeholders in the cooperation context. The stakeholders being the workers or the the uh, the members of a, of a consumer co-op, but also the people that an enterprise would be exchanging with, buying supplies from the supply chain are also stakeholders in the enterprise, etc. Okay, so just as a kind of like a preliminary point, I just want to be clear that that it's not so much as it's not so much a an essential definition of capital as it is a clarification of what I'm what I'm how I'm using the term. Now um, the second point I wanted to make is is in relationship to the way you kind of phrased the question of kind of cooperism versus capitalism or communism. So what I try to do in the book is really point out that those terms themselves I believe, are misleading. Capitalism is misleading. Communism or communalism is somewhat misleading. And that, in fact, both of those represent forms of strongly state-dirigist regimes that both of those would be opposed to something like cooperism which is much more which is much more bottom up versus those other forms and what what do i mean basically that capitalism is the term is an illusion or is misleading what i what i'm trying to argue is that capitalism suggest the term capitalism suggests that there's something about capital itself that is in the driver's seat that there are certain laws of capital or laws of the accumulation of capital or certain ways in which we would understand economic consequences as the product of capital itself, when in fact, it's not capital that's in the driver's seat. It's in a country like the United States, it's the federal government. It's the treasury. It's the U.S. Treasury. It's the fact that the U.S. Treasury is going to bail out First Republic and Silicon Valley Bank and I, AIG and I mean all of the and Citibank and and American Airlines and etc. It's not it the economic form in this country is not governed by capital. It is made possible, survives, and only exists really because of the treasury's promise to maintain our economic system to bail out banks to to bail out the american auto industry and so 
And so basically to call it capitalism <coughs> kind of points in the wrong direction. It should be called something like treasurism, really. And of course, that's important because, because it, it's not that, it's not that the, the economic form itself is having these effects. It's, it's state dirigism. Okay, now, and so, and so I think it's important then that cooperism be understood in contrast to those other forms as being very different because it's actually persons coming together and creating a worker co-op or <coughs> a consumer co-op and, and working together to try to ensure particular outcomes, greater equality, sustainability, environmental sustainability, and that that is, that is bottom up. So, so in a way, when I get into this conversation, I, I want to put aside the word capitalism in a way, because it's, it's misleading. Now, the third thing that you spoke about, though, is, is markets. And I had a sense that embedded in your question is this, is, and maybe this isn't fair, you'll have to tell me, but that markets are necessarily a form of or associated with capitalism. And, 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 and so I think some of your questions about kind of like the negative externalities of markets, et cetera, I, I would, I, I, I would want to say that actually markets are just regulated forms of exchange and that you can't escape regulated forms of exchange. So that, in effect, even within a cooperation, co even within cooperism, there's going there are going to be regulated forms of exchange that and that's because there is no space there is no economic space that is not regulated and it's it's how we regulate it that matters of course that's and that that was from the work you know from the illusion of free markets which basically the basic argument there was you know there there is no such a thing as a free market there is nothing but regulated spaces now so if that's right, which I think it is, what it means is that ultimately economic exchange is always going to be in some way regulated. Here it's going to be regulated through forms of cooperism, which means that the people who are in effect regulating economic exchange place cooperation and all the values of cooperation at the heart of the regulatory form. It's unlikely that it's it's unlikely it's 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 not it's it's not in a in a kind of like simplistic way anarchist if one uses a, a somewhat simplistic notion of anarchism because there are going to be there are going to be regulatory forms that have to be prescribed and ensured now, part of what I suggest is, you know, in 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 a in a in a in a regime of cooperatism, you would want the people who are thinking about the regulatory 
mechanisms that are inevitable to be persons who are steeped in cooperation, steeped in cooperism, people who have been part of worker cooperatives. So who have those values associated with cooperism at their heart. Okay. And the fourth and final thing that I think in response to your question, which, so there was a lot, as I was saying, you know, unpacking, there was a lot in that question. And this has to do in a way with the negative externalities. One of the things that I try to do in the book is show that there's actually more cooperation out there than we well, then we acknowledge or then we know or that we recognize or that we typically recognize even in treasurist economy like the United States, <laughs> not to say capitalist. So even in a treasurist economy, there's actually a lot of cooperation. What does that mean? It means that there are entities that function with values of cooperation rather than conventional competition and without the kind of shareholder, equity shareholder model. So the equity shareholder model is is displaced already in, in a lot of different enterprises. Now, and so I try to present a number of different organizations that are household names. And I I do that in part because I want people to all of a sudden see that, wait a minute, there are other ways in which we can organize economic exchange. State Farm is a mutual. So there's notions of mutualism that are very entrenched within the insurance industry. There are many mutuals within the insurance industry. REI is a consumer cooperative. Land of Lakes is a producer cooperative, right? So I, I use these things. Now, now this is where I think this touches on your on the in the on your question of kind of capital's negative externalities. And it's just, you know, and this was of course the problem that Marx identified with cooperatives being born out of the womb of capitalism and and being of the same ilk, basically kind of like profit motived cooperatives. I, here, what I want to suggest is, yes, look, these might not be the models for what we have in mind for a regime of cooperism. But just note that, first of all, these entities exist and they seem to be sustainable and survive. And they they do have a different, you know, structure in the sense that there aren't shareholders and it's not about return on investment it's not it's not shareholders investing in these corporations and trying to get maximum extraction on their capital right and even though they might not be ideal and they certainly aren't and even though they engage in problematic conduct and you know there's been problems with struggles against unionization within REI, et cetera. And even though there remains at times often a kind of a profit motive that is problematic, they have a structure that is the kind of structure that would allow for 
democratic self-determination that would allow for a much greater equality within the enterprise. And so I'm, I'm not trying to suggest that those are the kind of enterprises that one would want in a cooperism regime. But I am trying to suggest that, look, they have a different structure. They're, they're, and, so, and so we need to realize that actually there are ways of doing this, even within our present treasurist economy. And then, of course, you look at, you know, you look at a worker cooperative and, for instance, Dragon, of course, is what people always talk about because uh, it's huge and it's an industrial cooperative. It's the seventh largest industrial group in Spain. So, so people like to look at the consortium of cooperatives. But when you look at a, something, a place like that, and you know, most of the collectives have these requirements that the ratio of highest to lowest paid workers is actually, it's, it has to be 4.5 to 1, which is an extremely low by comparison to a country like the United States today, or most, most, most late modern post-industrial companies, countries, right, which have ratios. I mean, the U.S. ratio is somewhere around 670, I think, to one. And of course, in large entities, it can go up into the thousands to one. But these are, these are, these are, maybe they're, they're not, these are not ideal examples, but they, they have a different structure. They have a structure that would allow for democratic self-governance. And they have particular results that are worth attending to, such as strikingly reduced salary ratios, right? Now, definitely there are going to be negative externalities with some of these, particularly those that are really, you know, forms of cooperation that actually are masked, profit-driven cabals, maybe. But I think that I think that what what, the, what we should do is look at these as kind of examples, as examples of a different structure, the existence of another structure, and also as promising a way forward for cooperism. Well, if you don't mind, I, I'll just yeah. ask a follow up and maybe just narrow the scope of my question and concern. Imagine, for example, and maybe there's real examples of this. Partners, disparate entities on the supply chain who are interdependent, or maybe even competitors. If any of these parties were invested in a notion of cooperation or your cooperism, how would they go about, for example, establishing a culture and maybe even in a kind of local economy centered around those principles? Like, I, and, I, and here I'm thinking about like practical actions, you know, organizing unions. Like, what, what do you see, you know, in the abstract as being some strategies or has there been some real action in that respect? Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I think people have been working on notions of solidarity economies, which is pretty widespread now, at least in, 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 in action and in thought. And I think part of thinking through solidarity economies is finding ways to, to bridge some of those conflicts, maybe finding and, and to keep in mind that the goal here is not profit maximizing 
or extraction or kind of eliminating others, but finding sustainable ways of existing and not only sustainable and not only sustainable in terms of other uh, persons and enterprise, but sustainable in terms of the environment. So, so it's, 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 it's clear that, I mean, you're right to suggest that this isn't a, this isn't a, a seamless, it's never, it's not going to be a seamless space without conflict and contradictions. The question is how to address those conflicts and contradictions and whether, whether there's a way to try to coexist while sharing those values that are the fundamental values of, you know, cooperatives and cooperation, right? And so, uh, you know, it, we, have regula- we have regulatory mechanisms that, that do that in some, in some countries. For instance, you know, if you think at a small scale, of some regulatory mechanisms in some countries that you know require for instance that there always be a pharmacy that's open even though there's an understanding that they're going to be closed at times but in a way that it's you know that there are if there are pharmacies that are essentially you know in the same neighborhood that they are open at different times or even or even you know bakeries right so i mean there are ways in which one could imagine co- forms of cooperation that take into account the fact that there might be kind of different entities doing similar things in a space but that they can be arranged in such a way that they would benefit everyone and uh, be sustainable and not necessarily be the kind of kind of extractive enterprises that are out to eradicate others maybe i don't know if that's too concrete but i i I, in response to your question but i think but i think it's something like that oh no i i I certainly think that is a concrete answer and now i'm thinking about 24-hour bakeries well, maybe maybe you have some. We have some in London. They are delicious. But uh, I mean, I just want to make a quick comment. Actually, I, I actually appreciate particularly the ideas of, of conflict that cooperation is meant to solve. Not even in, as you do in the book, the sort of the tension between this individualist sort of libertarian sort of sensibility within, say, the Republican Party, but all, and the slightly more technocratic bends of the of the sort of the, the democratic aspect. But it's even a tension within history of political philosophy, particularly in America itself. But I mean. The, the, the you know it, the comp between Nozick and Rawls, for example, justice as rights respecting a minimal state apparatus, mostly for the for anything, the mediation of cooperation and the John Rawls aspect of justice as fairness. And it's I, I mean, as somebody who I mean, you know, at it arise and are a cooperative, although we are, we are a cooperative everyone inside this. I mean, it's what well, I think it's really interesting, particularly is the the idea of it being a question of sort of the inculcation of of corporatism as a value, or at least rather the revealing of it as a kind of latent value, 
so in that case, and I know Will, you've got more to say on this. I'll, just, I'll pass it on to you rather than leave that out as a as, as a question itself. I mean, feel free to ask it, right? Because like one of the one of the interesting questions here, and this is going to just be a two tiered question, right? Because one of my favorite sentences from from this book, which is going to push me to read the collapse of the harm principle, is in the social theory of of cooperation, which I think is in some ways targeted at Ranciere and and Habermas. Right, which says we cannot start from a universal or common core to harm. We have to start from the social context, right? Because from Adorno to Habermas to Ranciere, where do they want to start their their notion of the, of of for 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 Adorno the political? It's harm, right? For Habermas, where does where does the dialogical interactivity that becomes the life world start? It comes from an account of the harm, right? And then where, what is the basis of Rontier's democratic theory? Wrong. How, how are we wronged, right? <laughs> and these are treated as universals, right? So one of the things that I think on the other side of, of your theory of cooperation is a resistance to a universalizable notion of cooperation, which is why I think the ubiquity is so important rather than the universality, right? So one, of, so one of my questions is cooperation seems to play a really important part of Marx's work on large-scale industry, right? Without it, essentially, large-scale industry doesn't manifest in the collection of bodies that accompanies the collection of the accumulation of capital, right? Cooperation becomes foundational to the moral education to, to capitalist moral education, right? Because one of the, and you cite, you cite the punitive society heavily in this chapter, and then of course, discipline and punish later on. One of the, one of the ways in which one becomes a social enemy is through an articulation of a political obstinance, right? Drunkardness becomes, becomes the problem of a political social, political social liberation that is opposed to the natural order of the market. Right. The vagabond is a problem not just because of their nomadism, but because of their constituent inability to cooperate. Right. So one of the most important things for for a good for and this is even in Marx's early 1844 manuscripts, or one of the most important things is that a worker be able to to cooperate. But it is precisely this necessity for the worker to cooperate that puts them at the levers of production that makes the proletarian the the member of the revolutionary class for marx so there's this strange there's this strange tension in on cooperation where bodies are being broken down and turned into productive bodies through cooperation but at the same time through cooperation there manifests the possibility of conspiracy right there is no conspiracy without finding one another you know there is there is no such thing as a purely individual lifestyleism right mm -hmm. a, a lifestyle is always predicated on a union of egos right a form of life has to can only manifest through through union so i'm wondering you know when we talk about when we talk about the prescriptive aspect of of this text what is what is the relationship between cooperation and the historical mode of of moral education in this treasurist economy right where we're always treated as though every action that we take is interconnected with a moral failure right like i take on a bunch of student loans and i you know screw over you know 
myself and therefore my future progeny and therefore my nation and right mm-hmm. and and the 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 total mobility of of the state and its capacity to 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 maximize its productive forces but on the other side what is always precluded are these other forms of cooperation that are imminent to me being a good worker me being a good student me being a good teacher etc or a good creditor or debtor what have you mm-hmm. right all of these things are are linked up to two forms of cooperation so how do you sort out you know modes of capture that are predicated on dependency right we're all dependent on this treasurist economy and forms of cooperation that lead to an exit. What are some ways in which we can identify those modes of cooperation that are imminent to these other modes of cooperation that are far more malignant? Okay, okay, great. Uh, Let me start from where you started, which had to do with notions of harm. Because one 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 of the points I'm trying to make in the book is that the our very conceptions of harm would shift dramatically in a cooperation space in the in a in a regime of cooperism and so you're entirely right that there's no essentialism or universalism to the harm to notions of harm but that notions of harm Notions of harm are harm itself is incredibly sticky in our discourse and in the way we think about the world. And, and what I'm trying to suggest here, though, is that those would have to change in a space of cooperism. In other words, if we embrace the values of cooperism, then that entails necessarily a different set of values that infuse the way we talk about what is harmful conduct and what isn't harmful conduct, which is why, in part, I mean, that grounds the discussion about displacing the punitive paradigm because so much of the justification for the punitive paradigm are particular understandings of harm that are connected to, well, connected to private property, for instance, right? So, so on that score, I, 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 I think I agree with what you were suggesting and feel very much that that transformation of harm is essential to the production of a regime of cooperism. Now, now that then takes us to the second your second question and your second point, which in a way, I think it raises questions about the dark side of cooperation or the way in which cooperation can also be exploited in particular contexts. And I have no doubt that that is true. I have no doubt that it is true that In an extractive economy, we are going to, that an extractive economy depends in part on making people feel as if they need to be cooperative, right? Or that 
the lack of cooperation is a form of disorderliness or delinquence or and and is in that sense justifies forms of punishment so i think that it's definitely true that cooperation itself can be distorted and manipulated and uh, and used as a way to to uphold forms of domination yeah so then the question becomes how do we think about cooperation in relationship to what you refer to as moral education right or is moral education a part of this idea of cooperism and i certainly think that it is i'm not sure i like the term moral education in part because of its dark potentialities but i would i would say that that we are talking about values and this and this goes back to critique and praxis and to the second part of critique and praxis which is a a radical theory of values and i mean if you know cooperatism does depend on values that are that and 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 i try to talk a lot about the the principles of cooperatives and the values of cooperatives that have developed over centuries this isn't new and these aren't my ideas of what the values and principles of cooperatives are these have been established over a long course of people trying to think about cooperation i have no doubt that those values and principles require not if not inculcation at least well some form of education some form of some form of appreciation some form of sharing some discussion cuz the commitment question, go ahead cuz yeah. the question here right is that it's very it's very clear that what we what we see in what we see in early industrial capitalism is the necessity of the, the production of a particular subjectivity right mm-hmm. in the worker right mm-hmm. and that that relied not just on a particular class composition but also on a remarkable police regime of moral education to produce a worker right mm-hmm. to produce a worker most importantly who cooperates with other workers and can maintain the social relations that are sometimes in contradiction to the forces of production, but more, more, most oftenly, <laughs> completely congruous, congruent with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the question here is how how do we find a form of of cooperatism that uh, that doesn't necessarily doesn't have to like immunize itself against it, but moves away from from this moral education, this moral legalism about cooperation. Yeah. towards the production of other ways of of being together that aren't predicated on what what Craig called a, a productivism. Yeah, yeah. So here's I mean I think here here's what I would here's what I would say. I don't 
I don't think that the I don't think that the say the nineteenth century creation of among other things docile bodies and disciplined workers was so much a question of their moral education as it was a question of deploying moral arguments in a political context. So it was, in a way, a manipulation of moral notions in relations of power that were, in a way, purely political. And it wasn't, it wasn't really a question, it wasn't really a question of morally educating the factory worker, but it was a, it was a, it was a question of using morality within discourse as a way to dominate a class. So I wouldn't want to analogize that with what we would need to do in order to foster and promote more cooperation and more work solidarity and sustainability today. Because, because I really do feel as if what we were, what we saw with in, in the 19th century was more an, a, a, an imposition and a, and a, and a manipulation of moral discourse. And, you know, I think that Foucault's work, particularly in the punitive society is helpful here. You know, he has this, he has this remarkable hypothetical or fictitious conversation between the bourgeoisie and the workers in the, in, in the Société Punitive where, you know, the, all of a sudden they're like, but wait a minute, you know, you, you guys are, you guys are acting immorally, you know, but you guys are, you know, we used to be, we used to work together and now, now you're, now you're trying to steal our property and you're just a bunch of hoodlums and, you know, but, but that was all kind of like the deployment of moral discourse as a way to kind of dominate and to, 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 uh, to transform political relations. I'd like to think that we would have to engage in completely different practices to share values of solidarity and cooperation today. And it almost, um, it, it feels like this has to be predicated on what you're talking about with the punishment paradigm. All of this is bound up in a particular relation to the, the concept of correction. And, and it goes as far back <laughs> as the way in which we read the, the moral education of the guardians in in republic right like this is this is a remarkable hurdle which is why you know one of the deeper cuts of, of Foucault's interviews where he just like he interrupts the questioner i think it's in italy where he says do you really believe that were we to were we to get rid of the prison that the way in which we do philosophy would ever be the same 
right? I'm paraphrasing, so I'm, I'm sure I'm misquoting, but I, I can get away with that now. But I think that that's precisely why there's a deep relationship between the work that you do and some of the, when, when you did the roundtable at the book release, some of the commentary about the book was, it was impossible not to note the, the relationship between the work that you do at 1313 and the work that you do in the book and the work that you do, you know, legally. So all seem fundamentally interconnected in as much as there needs to be this fundamental transformation of the way in which we approach, the way in which we approach harm and punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that would necessitate then a shift away from, from I'm going to use the word derogatorily here, bourgeois moralism. Uh, so I think that, that what this, I guess this goes back to your early comment where in a certain sense, this book has to be treated as in conversation with the, the problem you lay out in, in critique and practice. But in that sense, it's also related to, to your most early work too. Yeah. <laughs> All of this is, is circles around the question of punishment. Right. But here's the thing. We can't wait for any one piece of this interlocking critical praxis to happen. And we can't wait for the personal transformations to occur first in order for the praxis to happen or for the punishment to be abolished and i think that's a very important point in this book but i think it's a really important point overall particularly in progressive spaces is that you know we speak of individual transformation or we speak of psychological you know practices of the self transformations of the self and the point is you you can't it's not as if it's it's like you have to be on all gears all the time and you can't just kind of say wait no before we do x we have to do y before we before we can you know, before we can act in a kind of revolutionary transformative way, we have to have a transformation of our own understanding of the world. And what I'm, what I, what I really want to hold on to, and you know, or that, or that we would have to do away with punishment in order to understand how to philosophize differently. We have to do all of these things at the same time, which of course is confusing. And it means it's a it means it ends up being a bit of a hodgepodge. But I do think that I do think that we can't we simply cannot, particularly at this point in time, with the crises that we face, we cannot simply kind of predicate transformation on on a transformation of the self, say, or on abolition of punishment. Right? We have to abolish punishment at the same time as we are transforming ourselves at the same time as we are revolutionarily transforming economic exchange right and that in a way is difficult complicated contradictory at times messy but absolutely necessary because otherwise i don't think we're going to get anywhere and and otherwise, I think it's always we're always kind of like predicating on something else, uh, which which is 
incredibly frustrating because if indeed we need to transform through practices of the self first before we're going to get anywhere, well, you know, that's just going to take too much time. We don't have that time. So in, so in a way, we need, to be, we need to be doing all of these things at once. We need to be trying to eliminate punishment through, you know, juridical interventions at the same time as we are trying to set up cooperism as an economic system at the same time as we are trying to transform ourselves through practices of the self, through what you might want to call moral education. I mean, you know, under that rubric, but it would probably something be about conversations like this rather than, you know, some kind of a dogmatic moral education that would result in transformation. But yeah, conversations like this at the same time as creating cooperative spaces like this. I can't think of a better way to, to close out a discussion. And it's also, you know, I can't think of a better time to make this comment. It's why you work, operate, write in so many different registers, right, all at once. So again, cooperation, a, a political, economic, and social theory from Columbia, thank you so much for, for, for joining us again. It's always a pleasure. We're going to continue to pester you for your time when you're generous enough to give it to us. But again, Bernard Harcourt, it's, it's always a pleasure. Thank you so much, Will, Greg, Adam. I really appreciate it. Thank you. We appreciate your support of The Imprint and the channel. Subscribe to Zero Books today on Patreon. Your material support helps us to promote a variety of perspectives on the left. Also, discover the many titles, new and old, that Zero has curated. Navigate to any of the links in the show notes to extend your support.